Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Today is a really special day because I've been working on a project and it's really beyond me. Anytime you do a research project in a book, it takes a ton of people. And what the happiest retirees know, which is the latest project that I just recently wrote about in the Atlanta Journal, AJC, and what I wanted to talk about here on today's episode is the culmination of a lot of years of work and study. And that work and study is around the habits or the happiness habits of the happiest retirees, uh, arguably in, in America. And, and the book is called What the Happiest Retirees Know, 10 Habits for a Healthy, Secure, and Joyful Life. And it is a project that's actually brought me a lot of happiness because it's something that I, that I love to do. And when I find something interesting, I, I just want to, sh- I want to share it with the world. And I will say this one's taken a long time because anytime you do research studies, you get a bunch of data and it takes a while to assimilate the data and actually understand what it is trying to tell you. And then we go from that and it takes a team of people that are looking at large Excel files of, with arguably tens of thousands of data points because we've done a lot of these different studies over the years and 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 we're emphasizing in this book the two most two to three most recent studies but it takes a while to assimilate it all and and that's that's what we've done and that's what is launching now and available anywhere from Amazon to the Eagle Eye Bookstore in Decatur, who's been so cool and helpful and supportive of many of the projects that I've done. By the way, that's the Eagle Eye Bookstore in Decatur, which is that cool bookstore in Decatur. But anyway, the so I want to go through this today and give you as much as I can in today's episode about this research, what I learned from, from doing this. Uh, what is in the book. And sure, I'd, I'd love for you to, to pick up a copy, but hopefully I'll, I'll be able to cover a lot of this too. But there's no substitute for the actual, for the, for the real thing, but I'm going to attempt for that today. So um, thank you so much again for tuning in as always. And maybe I'll start with this. I'm going to talk about today why why I study happy and unhappy retirees. And then what you can learn from what the happiest retirees know. The 10 habits for a healthy, secure, and joyful life. And that's, and today's a preview of that. And I'm going to start out with a story of a, a very good, very uh, real story about a, a friend of mine that is, I think, a powerful story. And it's a story that carries a lot of weight in how I think about money and happiness and the habits of happy retirees and what we what we go through once we get to a place of being able to be financially free. And the, and the story is a friend of mine named Ernesto. And he Ernesto sold a coconut water company to one of the big beverage companies. So think of the biggest couple beverage companies you can think of on the planet. And they knocked on his door one day and said, look, we want to buy your coconut water company. This was back in 2004. And Ernesto was only 28. He got $250 million for his coconut water company. Now, after he had shares to his partners and after he paid taxes, et cetera, just like most business owners, he didn't own 100% of this, but he built this from scratch, from scratch, and sold it for a quarter of a billion dollars. After partnership shares and taxes, he was left with $100 million. 
hundred million dollars. Ernesto, he was from Brazil, and he's a phenomenal guy, phenomenal person, energetic, rallies people around his cause, kind of exactly who you want to work with. And sometimes it takes that to build something that special. He started building the company, by the way, when he was 19. And by the time he was done, he had hundreds and hundreds of employees all over the world, in factories all over the world, producing his coconut water. It's a remarkable company. One of the main offices was in Scandinavia. One was in California. And I asked him what his life was like after that giant cash infusion. Well, after the big cash infusion, he, he, he moved to Miami. He bought a $20 million, I don't even know if it was 20, let's call it $20 million plus yacht. And he said he was on kind of cloud nine for a period of time. Uh, and and just kind of literally, think about this, 28 years old, young guy on a yacht. I mean, it sounds like Leonardo DiCaprio. This is the life this guy's living. And he basically partied for about two weeks and had the time of life. And then he looked around and he realized that after that initial really short period of time, he looked around and he didn't like his life. He missed the empire that he'd built. He missed his work family. He worked getting up every day and building this company that made coconut water. He'd built the company for almost a decade, every single day of his life. 50, 60 corporate jobs, hundreds and hundreds of people working in the factories all over the world. And he loved, he loved this group of people. He loved what they would, had built together. One day he looked around on his yacht and he had all the money in the world and he started to feel depressed. And Ernesto is not a depressed or melancholy guy at all. He's not like he's not on the on the oh that guy will eventually get depressed. He's just not even in the cards for this guy. So when I remember when he first told me the story, I thought I can't even imagine you like this, but it was. He missed that feeling of building and the energy that that built the coconut water company, then the, the the company and working gave him, and it was his work family, his work family, that was gone. Essentially, overnight, it's gone. And that led to him being depressed and a state of depression for the better part of a year. And then he started to participate in other ventures. Oh, maybe it'll help if I just start investing here and there, but still no, no real purpose. The good news is that he eventually pulled out of it, but not until he went back to work and found some sort of meaning again. Now, when we hear these giant financial numbers, we tend not to feel sorry for people. I can't feel sorry for Ernesto. He's only 28. He had all the money in the world. And you might not think this story applies to you, but it does. It applies to every single person that saves enough to be able to stop working. Every single person that retires not just young people that find themselves in this wonderful financial position, but every single person that has enough money for at least some level of financial freedom. If you retire with 750000 or a million and a half or $5 million, you're really not that different than Ernesto. Financial freedom is financial freedom. Don't let the zeros confuse you. This is the kind of story that I think about every day because every day I work with people that find themselves in a situation, not from a money perspective, but in the same position as Ernesto. And this story is much closer to you than you might think. That depression is always kind of that story of his phase of how difficult it was. It's always stuck with me. And maybe it's a huge reason that I've studied the habits of happy retirees and not just the habits of the wealthiest retirees. Yes, the money side of all of this is critical, but it is that plus more than 20 other habits that I learned through many years of researching this, many years in practice, 
And that's what I share in What the Happiest Retirees Know. Then we talk about the research. It took me 15 years of hosting Money Matters. And the better part of a decade studying HROBs. By the way, HROB is Happiest Retiree on the Block. And you, Robs, by the way, Unhappiest Retirees on the Block, conducting countless research surveys, analyzing all the data, and then creating the Retire Sooner podcast, which is a compliment to Money Matters Radio that you can hear on 95.5 WSB in Atlanta. But it took all that time to put together what I think of as this old family recipe that we can pass down from family member to family member to generation to generation. When it comes to research, the the first survey came in at something like 82,000 different data points. And then I've done four more studies on top of that. So it's hundreds of thousands of data points that ultimately became a guide and a series of stories of how ATROBs have weaved these habits into their life. That, that data turned me into a, an author. Now it's become my calling to find the best ways for retirees and just humans in general to find this balance between money and happiness. And there are, there are 30 things in this book that you can do. There's 30 things you can, that you want to do and 30 things to avoid that will, and I've seen this over and over again, increase your chances of happiness in retirement. Now, the way we do this in What the Happiest Retirees Know is that I, we categorize all of these habits into 10 different categories. The subtitle of the book, by the way, is 10 Habits for Healthy, Secure, and Joyful Life because the book is categorized into 10 parts. Each part or each, 10, each of those 10 categories, whether it is money, family, marriage, we call it love in the book, curiosity, which are core pursuits, religion and faith, social connectedness, and investing. And how happy retirees think about their money. All of this is in this latest project. So there are really 30 habits in 10 categories in what the happiest retirees know. And I and I told the story earlier today around my friend Ernesto who sold a company for a quarter of a $250 million. And he essentially is as great as that was. And nobody ever feels sorry for people that almost hit the lottery. He didn't hit the lottery, but he did have an amazing company that he built pretty quickly and within 10 years sold it. And he was still young. Then you think, oh, well, he's got it set and he's got it made. Well, he went into a big depression. And the when I think about that story and have for years and years and years, I realize that you getting to retirement, whether you have $750,000 in retiring or $7.5 million, you're really no different or have much more in common with Ernesto than you maybe ever thought. Either way, when you get to financial security and freedom, you still have to replace all the things that you did in your life. And a lot of times that is work for many of us. And we've got to be able to figure out a way to have that next chapter. And so that is why you need to worry about this as a listener and a reader. And I've seen this play out over the last 25 years being in the financial advice and retirement planning business. But I also want to share with you why it's been so important to me for such a long period of time, maybe since I've been a kid. And I think after a lot of reflection, it's because I grew up in this very dichotomous part of the country. It's called Coatesville, Pennsylvania. My dad still lives there to this day on a little farm. To give you a sense of the geography, parts of the HBO show Mayor of Easttown was filmed there. If you haven't seen it, it's a green light from me, 10 out of 10 when it comes to entertainment. Mayor of Easttown, Kate Winslet, amazing. But if you haven't seen it, I'll describe to you what it shows. And it paints a picture of Coatesville, Pennsylvania. And to call it drab would kind of be an understatement. There's these big steel factories and there's smokestacks and it's rusty and there's chain link fences. Because the town was a factory town. And when I was a kid, it was called Lucan's Steel. Now it's some big, giant, global steel company came in and bought it, and it's called something else now. But when I was a kid, it was just Lucan's. 
And it was less than a mile in the center of that town that still looks exactly today as it did as I was a kid. It's only about a mile, maybe a mile and a half from where my dad's farm is still. But it's amazing what a mile and a half does in rural Pennsylvania. Because you get a mile and a half outside of Lukens, and it's some of the most gorgeous property and gorgeous country in the United States. You don't think of southeastern Pennsylvania like this, but think Shenandoah Valley. Think rolling fields, hills, places where if you had a horse, you could ride for days and never run out of trails. Five-acre farms, 10-acre farms, 1,000-acre farms. There's even a ranch called King Ranch. I don't know how many acres King Ranch was as a kid. And I don't even know if it's still called King Ranch. But there are pictures that my family has of me when I was maybe five or six on branding day at King Ranch. And I'm not talking about what's our brand story. I'm talking about branding cattle right out of a scene of Yellowstone. And as a kid, the grown-ups, because my dad was a veterinarian, so he's involved in this, were branding the grown-up cattle. But as a little kid, they, they didn't let me actually brand the cattle, at least like he's from what I, what I can remember. But there is a photograph, a family photograph of me riding a calf as, I don't know, maybe five or six years old on branding day, getting bucked off. Maybe I'm digressing a little bit. But... From Luke and Steel, drab and rusty, to King Ranch. Now, just a 15-minute drive away was Amish country as well, Lancaster County. And you've seen this, witness, I've talked about this before on the show, but it's like the heart of Amish country. Remember Harrison Ford, Kelly McGillis in the movie Witness? That was filmed on the very same Amish dairy farms that my dad took me to when he was a large animal vet. So it was a world of extremes that I grew up in, like a lot of us in America, from lower middle class, call it Rust Belt, to the quaint simplicity of the Amish, to King Ranch, and horse farms, $50 million horse farms that are still there to this day. And I think that was a little confusing in my youth. And I assumed growing up, as I think most people do, particularly when you're young, that it was better to be wealthy than not. But the older I got, the more apparent that the really, really rich folks weren't any happier than the rest of southeastern Pennsylvania. And in some cases, and this is why studying the Amish or knowing the Amish is so fascinating, their life of simplicity that is the opposite of wealth by choice led to a wonderful life and maybe even higher levels of satisfaction. So that rattled around in my brain for a lot of years. And then I saw the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, and I realized that in that movie, 100% true story, about Chris Gardner, who I've also actually had on Retire Sooner podcast. The movie, of course, played by Will Smith, was that we have to figure the money side of the equation out to have at least a baseline towards these goals of happiness because the fear of running out is so powerful. The fear of running out is what the pursuit of happiness showed in such uncertain terms. If you can't pay your rent and you're out on the street, which by the way, can happen to anyone. And the successful Chris Garter true story shows that because there was a period of time in his life for almost two years when he lived in a homeless shelter and in subway bathrooms. Led me to saying, I, I need some data around this problem. How much money does it take? The Amish don't have a ton. The super rich people seem pretty happy, but maybe not any happier than the Amish. 
I know we don't want to run out or have any sort of fear of running out. So what's the answer? And that's when I turned to the data and started doing research studies around this relationship between money and happiness and the habits of happy retirees. And that's what my last two books have been about. And of course, the one that's now just out, What the Happiest Retirees Know, 10 Habits for Healthy, Secure, and Joyful Life. So here's how I've gone about for all these years, understanding and doing the research. We send out research surveys to thousands of families in the United States, all over the United States, and ask them a series of lifestyle questions and financial questions in addition to qualifying questions so I can get to the root of their state of well-being and happiness. Then I'm able to look at all the data and separate out the happiest two quintiles when it comes to households and people and compare how they live their life and their habits to the least two happy quintiles. We actually cut out the middle of the data set so we compare these two very different groups. And if we can understand their lifestyle and family and marital and social and financial and investing habits, those are the ones we want to follow. And those are the ingredients in the family recipe that gets passed down from generation to generation that we want to emulate. And that's pretty simply what's in the book. So here's what we're going to answer. What are the top three financial habits that the happiest retirees have in common? What's, what is one? I love this one. What is one single activity that retirees enjoy with friends at least once a year that's proven to double their likelihood of being happy? Another thing I've been able to do in these surveys is understand the propensity of how much more of a chance you have of being a happy retiree if you do this particular habit. One and a half times more likely, two and a half more times likely. So not all these habits are created equal when it comes to accelerating the propensity to end up in the happy retiree camp. I even asked about marriage and intimacy. Here's another big theme in the book. How much money is too much money to spend on your adult children? And what are some of the other ways that our children impact our happiness in retirement? Then, of course, what are the top five core pursuits? Hobbies on steroids of the happiest retirees. So from money to curiosity to family, love, faith, social health, home, housing, investing, and spending, it's all in the book, What the Happiest Retirees Know. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, it's funny. Sometimes books are pretty quick. and I've seen people write books in... You know, five or six months, and you can have a team of writers and they all help. And I actually had several editors on this project and many team members helping with all the data points and all the graphs. There are a ton of graphs graphs in this book. I don't even know how many there are. There are probably 30 or 40 different visuals in the book that help really tell the story. My favorite is probably the picture of my dad and a couple of my kids and actually my wife, it looks like he's married to my wife. And, and they, it looks like they're a family of my dad, who's a full-on retiree. I think Lynn in this picture is like 30. And then all of my kids and then all of my nephews and nieces. So it looks like there's this big happy family. I don't know why we use it, but it was like one of the few pictures that had all the grandkids in it at the time. And my dad used that picture in his 
retirement, hey, I'm selling the practice letter when he retired after 43 years with his veterinary practice. So uh, that's actually a really fun picture in the book. I just wanted to give you some qualification around that. And then, of course, lots of charts and graphs that show uh, in visual form what these habits really look like. And we can compare the happy group and the unhappy group pie chart that says for the happy group, it looks like this. For the unhappy group, it looks like that. Line graphs and bar graphs that say, this is the amount of money we need to get to. This is the amount of spending we need to get to. We even have a chapter when it comes to dividend investing that really shows how we can we can get dividend or income income relative to bond interest and the difference or disparity between those two very different income streams, both particularly important but of course, comparing and contrasting the two. My editors, or the, the publisher of the book is McGraw-Hill, and they I've never really had a book where they give or actually help and give you lots of resources because I, the book before this, You Can Retire Sooner Than You Think, they still had no idea if I was going to sell a lot of copies, so I didn't really get a lot of help. This time, we had tons of help, and it ended up going through seven rounds of edits, and, and we did that because charts and graphs can be pretty confusing unless you really figure out exactly how to present the data and explain it perfectly. So we took extra, extra time to make sure that every single graph tells the really important story that it's supposed to tell. So let's dive into some of these habits. So first of all, you don't need all 30 of them. There's no perfect answer on how many of the 30 you need to be a happy retiree. They're all just highly suggested because I know they work. Yes, it'd be great if you have all 30 of them, but that's probably not realistic. And you don't need all 30 of them. They're just ingredients to a recipe. You can dial one ingredient up or down depending on your taste or flavor. And then a lot of them are meant to say, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Let's work on that because it is really... The way I look at them also is as financial tiebreakers. There are a lot of financial decisions that we make that are not, there's no black and white right or wrong answer. It's just, oh, this is one way to do it. Here's another way to do it. But what are some of the other variables? And a lot of those variables can be life choices and can help as financial tiebreakers when you're trying to make a decision. So it's probably easy to start with the money piece of the equation because we want to at least have that foundation and build that foundation. And the question continues to come up, how much money is enough to retire? And the answer is, drum roll, a minimum of $500,000. Now, I, I looked at this data from a mean and median perspective. The median, which is kind of the middle point where I see people really jump to the happy category is a minimum of 500,000. I will say that the average for the fours and the fives, the happiest two group, are it's higher than that. It's in the $850,000 range, but the median is also an important way to look at this statistically, and 500,000 is the key. For some people, you'll hear this and say, that's not nearly enough money to retire. And then some people will say, Wes, that's so much money, I'll never get to $500,000 in liquid retirement savings. And again, I'm not here to debate that. I'm just here to say that those are the numbers. But the short answer is 500 grand, and I've seen this in practice as well, not just the data, is absolutely enough for people to be happy in retirement. There's a story on CNBC the other day. It was something like a woman in her mid-40s had $650,000 and she moved to Mexico and she's been retired ever since and she's loving her life. I also think $500,000 is an attainable figure for a lot of retirees. And it doesn't, and the other reason I think it's important to share that number, even, and this is for the folks that are saying, ah, oh, that's not nearly enough. I get it. But it's also an achievable number, even if your income's not through the roof. I've seen families where the husband and the wife neither ever even got to six figures, and they still were able to save more. The $500,000. So I've seen it done, not just a few times, but over and over and over again. The $500,000 is not an overwhelming number, at least the way I look at it. But to say you need to get to $10 million to be able to be financially independent and financial freedom, I think that scares the vast, vast, vast majority of people away. Of course, the next two financial pieces of the equation that are 
in my opinion, a few of the mandatory must-haves of the secrets. One has to do with paying off the mortgage. This one is actually number two in the appendix of 30. Happy retirees either have a paid-off mortgage or will soon. And this is a hotly debated topic, but happiest retirees enter retirement either mortgage-free or with mortgage payoff within sight, ideally within five years. And financial checkpoint number three, which is actually number three in the appendix, happy retirees have multiple streams of retirement income. And these are multiple and different streams of retirement income. You want several tributaries flowing together to form a powerful life-sustaining river of cash flow. And that can include a pension, multiple pensions, Social Security, Social Security for you and your spouse, rental property income, investment income, hobby income. And I actually include part-time work as well, which can absolutely serve as a core pursuit, which begins the next set of habits. Now, in the book, I have this chapter actually called or titled Curiosity. Curiosity habits. And this focuses in on this concept of core pursuits, which are hobbies on steroids. And I don't know the actual etymology behind the word pursuit relative to purpose, but in my book, those two words are inextricably linked. Purpose or pursuit. And happy retirees have anywhere from three to four of these critical ingredients. Now, unhappy retirees either don't have anything they enjoy doing when they're not at work or they kind of half-heartedly engage in a couple hobbies. HROBs, on the other hand, are constantly nurturing this sense of curiosity that leads to finding and developing deeper and deeper involvement with this concept of core pursuits. In fact... It's so important that our team actually built an algorithm around trying to help you figure out what core pursuits might make sense for you and your family. And it's it's called the Core Pursuit Finder. It's an algorithm and almost quick questionnaire slash test that you can do. It takes about 30 seconds and you put in what you like and what you don't like, what you're interested in, what you're not interested in. And it spits out a dozen or two dozen different things that you should consider when it comes to these happy retiree habits that we've documented for really for years and years and years. So that's the next part of the equation. HROBs, I talk about in this chapter about curiosity, an absolutely critical piece of the equation. Regardless if you do the core pursuit finder or not, we talk a lot about in what the happiest retirees know, what are some of those, what are some of those hobbies on steroids? What are the core pursuits? of the happiest group. And the way to do core pursuits, think of them also a lot like the financial piece of the equation, which is not something that gets done or accomplished overnight. It takes years and years and thought and almost creativity around finding the things that you love to do and getting better at the things you love to do. And it's not something you want to start when you're 65 and now you have as much money as you need to have, but You've cultivated no other areas of this important category. And it's not something you want to wait to start on. So if you're listening or you're reading What the Happiest Retirees Know and you're in your 30s or 40s, this is the message that I think should be loud and clear, which is start focusing in on these. And these are the non-financial, this is an example, one of the very non-financial life habits that the money side pays for. But it's something that it's not a maybe part of the ingredient list. It is a, it's the salt in the soup. It's the chicken in the chicken soup. It's a must have. And it's something that you need to start on long before you call it quits at work. Now, the next set of ingredients has to do with our, what I call in the book, our, our family habits, which is chapter five. And I think we titled this, Get Your Kids Off the Payroll. Because I was fascinated by this research that showed just how many families in America are supporting their adult children. And there's actually a really big difference between 
how the happy group supports their kids relative to the unhappy group. And I'm not talking about kids or children. I'm talking about adult children. And I'm not talking about just Christmas presents and an occasional trip to Disney. I'm talking about support that's monthly, and it's a really important part of their balance sheet. And it's well-known and well-documented, way way beyond or way before the research that I did that, that confirmed this as well. But it's shocking to me, and this is one of the other reasons why I like to do research, is that I'll read a, a research from creditcard.com or some other institution. And they'll say that 42% of all families are helping their adult children under the, you know, between the ages of 25 and 40. And I, it's hard to almost believe these sometimes when you read them until you do your own research and the data comes back in a similar way. And it says, yes, almost half of, of grownups, in this case, let's call it the baby boomer generation is supporting their adult children in very significant ways. And, but I, but I found a difference. And the first theme when it comes to the family chapter here is that we want independent children, period. We also want to help our children, but we don't want them to be overly dependent, particularly financially on us, particularly as we're heading into retirement. So when it comes to our kids, and there's, there's some statistics around in the book when it comes to the number of children, which is, I'll let you read about that. But when it comes to living near your children or living with your children, it's a pretty interesting data set. I found that if you're living or if your kids are living with you and you actually have your adult children, it actually brings and adds to lower levels of happiness. One of the things I talk about in in the book is this concept of your kids should get married and get out. Now, we can't control, we can't be professional matchmakers. We can't control if our kids fall in love and, or get married. That's off the table. But the numbers don't lie. Retirees are twice as likely to be unhappy if their adult children are still living single. And happiness levels go down if adult children are living in the house. So we want, so happy retirees want their kids, or well, all retirees want their kids to get married and get out. But we also do not want to live all that far from our kids. And, and I think if you think about this, you want to see your family and you love to see your family, but do you want your family to come stay at the house for three days, for seven days? For 30 days? I think you know the answer. We'd love to see our family, but we've got to have some separation and some some independence. And this is where one of my findings I think is extremely telling and an an important statistical piece of the equation. And that's this. The very happiest retirees live near at least half of their kids. And oh, by the way, they are less likely to be supporting them financially. We can think about it this way. In retirement, your adult kids should live near you, but not with you. And the research here that I have in the book is crystal clear. It shows that parents who are funding their children's lifestyles or let them move back home for an extended period of time, their happiness levels decline sharply. But, and this is maybe one of my favorite parts of the whole book, Retirees who live near at least half or more of their children are two to five times, 2x to 5x, more likely to end up in the happy camp. Maybe this isn't the kind of data that ends up in a 50-page financial plan, but maybe it should. Here's the next piece of the equation that I, I love about this book when it comes to places of worship. Because we know, and I know in researching for the book, that religion in America is actually, or belonging to some sort of place of worship, has continued to decline. And I found in my research, I wanted to try to find any sort of relationship. Does a place of worship, just going to church, have any impact on our happiness or our well-being relative to what unhappy retirees do. And we, we found a real relationship, meaning that when this is number 14 in the appendix is that retirees who attend a place of worship on average once a week are one and a half more times likely to land in the happy camp. And I'll never forget this. I remember talking with my pastor from my church and I told him, 
we had breakfast one day and I told him, look, I can't, it's really hard for me to get to church every single Sunday because I've got money matters on WSB on the weekends. It's just tough. I've got four little kids running around. And he said, look, Wes, people that say they go to church every Sunday, how many times a month do you think they actually go to church? And I said, I don't know, three to four times a month. He said, 1.7. Now, I don't know if that's a well-known statistic within the religious clergy community, so when people in my survey say, yeah, I go to church every Sunday, do they really go to church every Sunday or just they think in their minds, oh yeah, we go to church every Sunday? I think the answer is probably closer to what my pastor said is that when you say you go to church every Sunday, it doesn't really mean you go to church every Sunday. It just means you have a church to go to. And in my research, it shows that it leads to higher levels of happiness. Right now, I want, to, I want to cover a couple fun topics. One has to do with marriage. And, and I will say the most interesting chart in the book has to do, it's a, it's a timeline between, uh, retire, it's a timeline of marital happiness levels relative to money. What? Yeah, we're going to go through that. We'll talk about social connectedness and that relationship for happy versus unhappy retirees. And then... We'll talk about investing, habits. So when it comes to marriage, money is at the very top of the list when it comes to issues, particularly when it comes to divorce. It's one of the main things that comes up and is a huge variable for so many families that end up getting divorced. And I wanted to understand deeper about what that money relationship is relative to marital happiness. And our research was able to distill down different phases or different amounts of time or years of marriage relative to how happy people were during those different phases or from year to year. Meaning that, hey, what was the happiness level at year six and year 18 and 27 and 33 and year 40 plus? And it comes back as a really interesting commentary and I think a lot of this is impacted by life and kids, but there's a big money component to it as well because money shows up as an important piece of the marital conversation. And the chart goes something like this. We get married and we end up in this long period of time. It's actually a long period. It's about six, if I look at my chart here, it's about six or seven years where and I call this the honeymoon phase and marital happiness is through the roof. So the, for the first six years, when you typically are still haven't had kids yet, you end up in this, Hey, we can now spend our money on us. We can do whatever we want. We can go here. We can go there. We can, now we're both working. We're making money. We can actually spend on us. And then what happens? Well, we go through something called budget shock and it's because we have kids and kids set off this whole domino effect of all these other things that force us to really grow up because it's not just the cost of having a child it's all the other things that go around it now that we have a child and a dog maybe we can't live in this small apartment anymore and spend all our money on fun early things that couples do so in our lives, we go from spending money on just me to then us to them, meaning the kids. And that takes some real adjustment. And from my data, marital happiness takes a hit for a while. But then it starts to improve. and gets back above the kind of initial happiness starting point. And then it gets hit again around year, let's call it 21, when what happens? Sticker shock. Because all those kids now need very grown-up help. Things like college, things like, hey, I need an apartment, things like I need help with a down payment on a house, all those things that are so much greater than, hey, I got to go buy diapers and formula. Well, that's one thing. But now when you start talking about education and college, it's real sticker shock. But finally, after around the 24th or 25th year or so of marriage, the direction of your savings and your money comes back to you and your spouse. And we see then, really, for the rest of this marital timeline, things get better. 
And it really, by the way, goes through the roof when you get to 40 years plus because you know what? By then, you made it. And I love the happiness. And I love this chart that literally is titled Happiness on the Journey Through Marriage. Next piece of the equation has to do with social connectedness. This, this is chapter eight, social habits. And I title this Connect to Thrive. Because again, this is, of all the habits, I'd have to put money as kind of the foundational piece so we know we're not going to run out. And this would have to be number two. And that is our well-being, our happiness based on social connectedness. We actually did an entire separate study all around social connectedness. And I asked a series of questions, but it got down to the following. How many close connections do you have in your life? And I define close connections as someone that you could call on a really bad day or a really good day. And that's the measure of someone that you have a close connection with. You can tell them really bad news or you can tell them really good news. Sometimes it's hard to do both. And the data here is, is really interesting because there's actually no plateau effect. And I find these plateauing effects in a lot of the different money, happiness, relationship questions and data that we analyze. But in this one, there's no, there's no plateauing. It seems as though as social connections or close connections moves higher, so do levels of happiness or the multiple of how much more likely we'll end up in the happy camp. There is an important kind of bare minimum we have to get to. Now, if you go back, and this I remember from a conversation with Dan Buettner, who's the author of Blue Zones, is that back in the 1980s, it was reported that Americans on average had three close friends. And here we are, let's fast forward 40 years later, where we now have hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of friends online and we're connected via social media. But now America's report that we have less than two close friends or 1.7 close friends. And there's an issue in that. Because in my research, it shows that we actually do, as humans, need to get to at least three close connections to end up in that happy camp. What's interesting is that happiness levels rise dramatically when it's four close connections. It rises even more when you have five close connections. So there's almost no, seemingly no diminishing marginal happiness when it comes to the amount of social connections we have as humans and retirees. Now, of course, you can't have 100 close friends. You can't, probably can't have 50 close friends. But you can have a handful of people that love you for who you are and you can confide in, you can talk to about bad news and good news and not be judged. And that's the measure of a close friend. And happy retirees know this. And it's not enough just to have close connections. There are research shows that you, you actually have to see people and you have to see your close connections more than once or twice a year. So I actually talk about that in the book. Now, this is kind of a fun one. Maybe we can even call this a happiness multiplier turbo booster. But there is interesting, as we studied social connectedness, it is interesting that one of the huge drivers of propensity to land in the happy group has to do with not just seeing our friends, our close connections, but traveling with them. Meaning that going on a trip at least once a year with your friends or close connections it's almost this happiness turbocharger in the data. That's what I love about doing this research is you, you can't make this stuff up. So many of these data points will come back and I'll say, wait a minute, what? But the relationships are real and that's why it's a lot of fun to write about them. In fact, happy retirees belong to at least one social group. And maybe this relates back to why church shows this higher propensity for happiness. And, and this was a totally separate study and a totally separate question, but it is interesting that once you're part of at least one social group, it doesn't matter what the social group is. It could be your tennis team. It could be a running group or a hiking group or a book club or civic engagement group, or it can be a neighborhood cleanup crew. 
it only takes one social group or almost, and I, we, we talk a lot about this in the book, a social epicenter to move the needle. I found that being part of just one social group increases retirement happiness by almost double. As we've talked through this episode, we've really hit a lot of these different categories that are part of a a long recipe of things that we want to do to increase our chances to end up in the happy versus the unhappy retiree camp. H-Robs versus U-Robs. H-Rob is the happiest retiree on the block. U-Rob is the unhappiest retiree on the block. Hey, I want to be that guy or I want to be that couple, the happy side. And we can do that if we follow what we've learned from the happy group. You reverse, you find a population of, of people you want to emulate, you reverse engineer that, and that's what this is all about. And it's research-based, and it's a lot of fun to read because it's filled with stories that I have. Com- I try to complement the research and the data with real-life stories to see where, hey, I've seen this also in real life. Another huge part of the equation, and I know we talk about this on Retire Sooner Podcast and Money Matters all the time, and that is this power of the investing side of the equation And that's called dividend investing. And to me, that is one of the most powerful tools in the HROBS toolkit. Stock dividend income wins against bond income by an incredibly large margin, if we're looking at history, and has grown at about twice the rate of inflation over the better part of market history, meaning that dividends from publicly traded companies, and I'm just looking here at the S&P 500, have grown historically at twice the rate of inflation, meaning that dividends have not just continued steady, but increased at a higher rate than we've seen when it comes to inflation. And there's a lot about that in this book, and it's an important part of the overall toolbox that I really want people to understand. Speaking of inflation and the very thing that we're all trying to outrun when it comes to retirement, protecting our purchasing power, We're in a world where we've got lots of inflation, at least right now. We've got supply chain issues. But because of that, the Money Matters team has ordered so many of these books from, or at least McGraw-Hill has, our publisher, for what the happiest retirees know, that this should not be in short supply for the holiday season. Meaning that if you're looking for a book for mom and dad, friends and family, my Uncle Joe is about to retire in Minnesota then why not pick up a copy for him or the audiobook or the Kindle version, whatever it is, of what the happiest retirees know. 10 Habits for a Healthy, Secure, and Joyful Life. I am your host, Wes Moss. I wrote this thing and I hope you love it. And thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.